find it is uh, amazingly true that you sent your Son to show us your love and we pray that you'll help us to see how your love reaches us every single day through the death of the Lord Jesus. And we pray you help us to learn that from this part of the Bible. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went to the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he... I've jumped two pages, that doesn't help, does it? And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us who has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and, and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, yet fulfilled them by condemning him. And although they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us 
their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not <coughs> let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look ye scoffers, be astonished and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting in the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But as they shook off the dust from their feet against them, they went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's a bit of math, wasn't it? But we're going to be learning from that and gaining from it uh, in just a moment. Natalie's got to go first with the children, and then the rest of us will go back to that passage again. Let's make a start because we've had the Bible reading and we've had the prayer time and uh, it'll be good for us to learn uh, from the Bible reading. And let me ask you a question as we start. What would you like me to say to encourage you this evening? Go on, the floor's yours. 
what would you like me to say to encourage you this evening? Mike, give me a thousand pounds. That'll encourage me. That will go a long way to making you happy that you've come, wouldn't it? Others of you might say, no, we're going to church, so if Mike is going to give us any encouragement, it's likely to be about God. Mike, tell us that God loves us. Okay, fine, I'll tell you that. But how does God love you? And given that my hand's nearer the Bible than my checkbook, I'll do it from the Bible and I'll tell you how God loves you from here. And it'll be different encouragement than uh, what uh, many uh, encouragements might be that you would have got the rest this week. Because if you look at Acts chapter, 50, uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 15, you see that they've read the Law and the Prophets, and now the elders send up for some encouragement. After the reading of the Law and the Prophets in verse 15, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Okay? So Paul then comes tumbling out with lots of words, but I take it as he's explaining what those words are in Acts chapter 13, that he is answering their question. He's giving them some encouragement from all the things that he says. And our job tonight is to work out why, out of all the different things that he said that might have sounded a bit confusing to you at the start, why is this an encouragement to them and to us? But also why, after they get this encouragement, they don't really want it. So, it'll help us to see that Christianity brings great encouragement to Christians. And it'll also help us to see why some people are put off at the same time. Okay? Three great encouragements. And you've got the things on the piece of paper if you want to follow it there. But it'll be there on the screen. I tried to get a backdrop that went with Verona's blouse. And um, <laughs> it's about the same. But uh, essentially, if you understand the Bible, there's a little bit of code here. The Bible says that your sins are as, as, as scarlet, they should be as white as snow. So what I've tried to do is to find some scarlet things and put some white snow on. Okay? Gives you the picture of forgiveness. Jesus forgives. Number one, forgiveness. There it is. And if you want to know why I said that, I'll let you cheat. You can go to the end of that reading and look at Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, and you see that that's where Paul is going at the end. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Okay, you want me to encourage you at the start? Here's the encouragement. There is forgiveness to be proclaimed. And that is what Paul is going. They've read the law and the prophets at the start and uh, they want the encouragement and well, says Paul, if you've been paying attention to the law and the prophets you've just had read to you, you know you're done for because you don't stand a chance. But let me encourage you that someone came to forgive you who, in verse 39, will free you from everything from which you could not be freed by the law and the prophets. Uh, it's just uh, impossible for you to keep the law and the prophets, but here's someone whose forgiveness will free you 
in a way the law and the prophets could never do that. It's a bit like me going to an audition at uh, uh, the London Symphony Orchestra and all I've got to do is to read out the standard of music required to realize I'll not get a look in. And it's the same like that with God. Whoever's heard the Law and the Prophets read will realize if that's what it takes to get in, they don't stand a chance. No one plays God's music in that way, at that standard, for us to qualify. But the encouragement that Paul then gives in this little history lesson that follows is that God can and will do what is necessary, what is required for his people. Even though they disqualify themselves every step of the way. And you can see how that happens. Because uh, in the end, uh, it is always going to be that uh, God does the work. And he is the provider of everything for his people. And you see that at the start of Paul's history lesson, so that you can get to the conclusion at the end, yes, he will even pro provide forgiveness. But God is at the start of every sentence between verses 16 and 23. In other words, God is at the start of everything that has happened to his people. Look, you can save my voice. You can do this for me. You tell me what God has done, okay? I'll give you the verse number. You tell me what God has done. Verse 17, what has God done? Let's be a Pentecostal church. Well, we are a Pentecostal church. Okay, what has God done in verse 17? He made the people great. He chose them first. Okay, it starts with his choice. And he made them great in the land of Egypt as well. And led them out. Verse 18, what did he do? He put up with them. Okay. Um... Wives aren't the only ones, okay? Uh, God has to put up with them, with his, with his stubborn Israelites too. Verse 19, what did he do? Hmm? Yeah, and then after doing that, what did he do? Yeah, he gave them a land. And then what, he does, what does he do in verse 19? Uh, verse 20. What did he give them there? Give them judges. What does he give them in verse 21? What does he give them in verse 22? What does he give them in verse 23? I brought them a savior. Okay? So you can see that God is at the start of every sentence. He is at the center of every action. So if you saw the story of God's people like a movie, and you get to the credits at the end, the movie has been, the whole story has been uh, directed by God, produced by God, and God is the chief actor. Okay, if you want to know what the Bible is about, just think of it like that. That's the picture of God at the center and start of everything. What about the picture of God's people? Well, let me tell you, I'm getting to be an expert on pictures because I'm a granddad. And every other day I get a picture about my granddaughter. 
And let me tell you, I've learned two things from all the pictures I get of my granddaughter. One is that she is entirely dependent of her parents. The second thing is if she's left on her own, she's a mess. And you will know the pictures even without me needing to show you because children, when they're babies and they feed themselves, they can't even do a simple thing like that. They feed everywhere else except themselves. And they are a mess. And that's exactly the picture of the Jewish nation. They are a mess. Look at it in verse 18. God has to put up with them. Verse 21, he gives them a king. Verse 22, he's got to remove that king. It's a, he's a failure. And then finally, God gives them someone who will bring to them a kingdom like David. What do they do? They get rid of him in verses 27 and 20, 29. And um, uh, I've lost my page. So they've Otherwise, I'll read them to you. There we are. For those who live in Jerusalem, they didn't recognize, I understand, after the past, and though they found in Jesus no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed, and they laid him in a tomb. That was rejection. They get that wrong as well. They are a mess. But, on the other side of the mess, God's back in the driving seat. He's doing the action. He resurrects Jesus in verse 37, and it is the resurrection of Jesus that proves, we'll get to this in a moment, that forgiveness comes to everybody in a mess. So it should be a great encouragement to the people in the synagogue that day to hear the law and the prophets, and then straight away to realize there is a God who will give them everything, including the forgiveness they need to set them free from the things the law and the prophets could not set them free. And we're going to see later why that is such an encouragement to us as well. Okay? The first encouragement is that Jesus forgives. The second encouragement is that Jesus forgives everyone. And we're looking at why the Jews, having asked for encouragement in verse 15, don't really want it because it's letting in non-Jewish or Gentile people if you look at verse 47 and there's a light for the Gentiles now if you look at verse 45 you see that the Jews are objecting because they're filled with jealousy but let me tell you this is not the jealousy of popularity in other words uh, they like poor more than they like us so we're jealous that's not the reason it's not the jealousy of popularity it's the jealousy of accessibility if i can put it like that they don't want these large numbers of gentiles coming in too easily that's what they're objecting to because these jews they listen to their law and their prophets they listen very carefully and when they listen very carefully, they do what the law and the prophets say. They um, uh, don't uh, uh, intermarry with other people. They are circumcised. They keep the Sabbath day. They try and do everything that they're told. And they're perfectly happy if there are some Gentiles in the room 
that want to do what they want to do. So if you look at verse 16, if you look at verse 26, there are non-Jewish people in their synagogue. They're called God-fearers. Yeah, they're the ones in the balcony at the back. But they're happy for them to be there because they want to do the same things that Jewish people want to do. But now, in verse 45, it's not just the ones at the back, there's more Gentiles now than ever. And here's the point, you see. If God is handing out forgiveness to everybody, what's the point of being Jewish anymore? No wonder they don't like it. So it's encouragement, which is not encouragement for them. But it is encouragement for everyone. Because the reason why they're objecting is because this forgiveness is for everyone. And then there's a third big encouragement as well. And the third big encouragement is that God forgives everyone not despite opposition, but because of opposition. I don't know if you were in the country last week, but uh, on Tuesday our Prime Minister suffered a huge defeat in Parliament. Her great deal was stopped in its tracks by the opposition that came against it. What the Bible tells us is it's the reverse with God. The more you try and stop him, the more he wins. That's the point of uh, this passage. Now you think that actually it shouldn't be like that. I'd agree with you. <coughs> it should be that when God tells people what he's going to do through the law and the prophets, that everybody should pile in and cooperate. But they don't. In verse 27, they don't understand the utterances of the laws and the prophets which are read every Sabbath. But as they oppose the utterances of the law and the prophets and condemn the one God sent to forgive them, they actually fulfill the utterances in the very act of not understanding <coughs> them and rejecting them. It's the saying no to God that causes the advance. Now my friends, can you see how greatly encouraging that is? God doesn't need his friends to make things work. It's God's enemies that make things work. Now that's good to give you an encouragement that therefore God's plans will never <coughs> go off track. If it's the enemies that are making them work, they're never going to fail, are they? And he's saying no to God that ultimately led down the process of Jesus being tried by Pilate and even though he was innocent he was condemned and then he was uh, killed and then finally he ends up in the tomb. But that's where he has to be if you're going to have a resurrection. And the reason why the resurrection is important in this passage is that it is the resurrection that proves you can be forgiven. So put verse 37 and verse 38 together and see that connection. 
The resurrection is there in verse 37, and because of the resurrection in verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore. Okay, so it's linked to the previous verse. Because there's a resurrection, therefore, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It's the resurrection that is the reason why forgiveness is now yours. And it's the resurrection, therefore, that is getting center stage if you look between verses 32 and 37. The resurrection is big because forgiveness is big and that's the reason why you'll be forgiven. That's your proof. That's what the prophets were pointing to all along. So verse 33 is a flashback to Psalm 2. It says that, second Psalm, where God identifies who his son is through the resurrection. And then verse 34 is a flashback to Isaiah chapter 55. Incidentally, uh, if you want to cheat, you can see it all there in the bottom of the page in the small print. Uh, it will tell you. Isaiah 55 is where God promises David an eternal kingdom. But he can't be the dead David that gets the eternal kingdom. To have an eternal kingdom, you must have a resurrected king. It logically follows, doesn't it? Kind of a eternal kingdom if the king's dead. So there's got to be a resurrected king, and then you have an eternal kingdom. And then finally, in verse 35, you get a flashback to Psalm 16, which tells you we're talking all along about Jesus, not David. David's got a tomb. The tomb is over there. It's a tourist spot in Jerusalem. If you want to go and see the tourist spot, it's a very fine building. Go and see it. And across the road is a lovely coffee shop. You can go and get a fine cup of coffee there if you want. Check it out if you don't believe it. But Jesus, there's no tomb. And because of his resurrection, there is forgiveness. But it's because of the tomb, because the, the rejection before the tomb, that God did his work. It's always the resistance of people that means that God does more work and fulfills purposes. So therefore you see it happening here at the end, where the Jews reject the message. They contradict the things that are spoken about by Paul in verse 45. And then what happens? As a result of that, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And the prophecy of Isaiah is there in verse 47, uh, from Isaiah chapter 49, that the ends of the earth will find forgiveness. Why? Because the Jews reject it. Now they're going to the ends of the earth. It's saying no. That's making uh, the whole project progress and go forwards. Now my friends, understand this. It is a great encouragement to us, isn't it? That for God to succeed in his purposes, he does not need obedience. He works and saves through rejection. No other God would uh, ever have that <coughs> claim made of them. And so we need to work out what 
does that help us with tonight in Dagenham, uh, years later? Where for a start it helps us remember that we've got to start pressing buttons if the projector's going to be working. And I think we've covered that in the ground already. But let's go on to see how uh, this affects us. Number one, let me talk about, talk to three different people, three different words of encouragement. First, if you're someone who's new to Christianity, let me ask you a question, my friend. Are you happy with the way that you are living your life? Engage with me on this one. What do you think? If you had to give yourself a happiness score out of 10, what, would, what mark would you give yourself no. in terms of happiness you are? <laughs> well, you would maybe say nine, uh, but if you were someone who may be outside the Christian family, it might be that uh, we understand that life is not what it should be for us. I asked Faramaz this uh, when we were studying this passage on our own and uh, Faramaz was very anti-God right through his life and I said, Faramaz, if I'd met you in Tehran in those days and asked you, what score would you give yourself in terms of happiness? He said, well, I was getting drunk, I was getting into fights and in those moments I would feel happy but actually those moments were to take my mind off the fact that I was unhappy. And I think a lot of people are taking escape flights into materialism, into um, drink, drugs, you name it, in order to escape the fact that deep down there is the unhappiness that we feel in our hearts because we have failed. And we know we have. Well, can you see that forgiveness is the only encouragement that anyone needs and wants when we feel that way about ourselves. A lot of people think you read the Bible and the message is go off and be good. But what the Bible really wants us to do is to meet the God who has given you everything and will also give you his forgiveness so you can come in and know him as your father. And maybe tonight, if you're new to Christian things, you might want to go to God and say, God, you have been so generous to me. You have provided with me so many different things. But please, will you provide me with one thing more? Will you give me just one thing more as well? Will you give me your forgiveness? So that uh, I might know that uh, I'm drawn in and accepted by you into your family. Will you do that? I know what I'm like. What have you been to churches where you've heard the Bible read every week? I know that that will apply to people here. Can you see how easy it is for these people in the synagogue and for churches today to have the law and the prophets read? In other words, to have the Bible every week and to get the wrong end of the stick. So let me ask you a simple question. The times you've been to church 
what experience, what, what effect has that experience had on you? Has it, has it resulted in you leaving church trying to lead a better life? Or has the experience of church left you leaving church seeing your need to be forgiven? I can give you another question to help you work out which answer you might want to give. Let me ask you, how easy is it do you, do you find it to criticize anyone? That will tell you that you probably think that other people are a mess, not you. That's why we criticize. And so what we do is we scoff at the Bible telling us that we need to be forgiven. Now we haven't got time to go into it, but look at verse 41. You see it's a terrible judgment for people who scoff at their need for forgiveness. Look you scoffers, be a stunned and perish. I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you. It is a terrible thing to scoff that other people need forgiveness, but not you. And very often the way we hear the Lord and the Prophets taught to us is we've got to go out to lead a better life, not to love the one who the Lord and the Prophets tell us will forgive. And then uh, lastly, what if you are a real Christian? And a real Christian, my friend, can be defined like this. It is someone who knows full well that they are specialists in making mess. I want to encourage you to tell you this is the greatest encouragement you can have. Because my friend, I, I don't know what people call me, pastor, whatever it is, but I can't escape the reality that my life is full of letting people, letting God down, and hurting others. And my guess is if you're a real Christian, you will find it really hard to tell the person sitting next to you tonight how your Christian life is going. Because you'll be embarrassed. Now, if I was to write you a check and somehow make your material life different, okay, I might encourage you that there's a God who loves you and cares for you. But I want to encourage you more uh, effectively than that to say that the greatest encouragement that God brings is that he will forgive you as you uh, find God's forgiveness hard to take in as you look at the way that your life keeps falling down. And if I find the difficulty of applying the forgiveness of God to my heart when I feel a failure, please let us follow what the Bible tells us to do tonight, and that is not to look at our sinful hearts and to say, this heart is so hopeless. How can I believe that this heart of mine can be forgiven? I can, I can imagine how that person's heart, they're not so bad as me. How do I take it in that my heart can be forgiven. The answer is, take your eyes off the heart, put your eyes on the fact that, uh, of the resurrection. Because it is the resurrection that happened
that means forgiveness is proclaimed to you in verse 38. And the question, about, can I be forgiven or not, is answered by the fact is, was there a resurrection or not? If there was a resurrection, then forgiveness is what you must proclaim to yourself. Because it is true that forgiveness is yours. And that forgiveness is not just assurance that you can be forgiven. The resurrection, rather, is not just assurance that you can be forgiven. It is also a pointer to the future. So it's, it's not just um, a proof that uh, you can be forgiven. It's also a preview of what your forgiveness will be because you will be resurrected because you are forgiven. That's what resurrection means. The forgiven person will themselves be one day resurrected. So the resurrection is enormous. It is proof and it is preview of your future. And you, finally, will brighten that confidence in you as you take it out to others in verse 47. Because, my friend, everyone in our state has aching hearts of failure, which they try and drown out in different ways and look to be distracted from in different ways. But everyone in our state will have the aching heart of failure in them. And everyone on our state can have the joy of forgiveness in verse 48 and the knowledge of God's love in that very unique way. And our own awareness of forgiveness will grow as we take the encouragement of God's forgiveness to others. You will strengthen the hope within you of this great God and his forgiving ways as you take it out and share it with others. I'm going to stop there, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to uh, come back with any <coughs> questions or comments that you want to make. Let me first pray. I'll tell you what, I'll pray after you. So why don't I give you a minute, and you can pray quietly, silently, and then I'll bring it all together and I'll pray. It would be good to keep praying on these things as we get home, but at the same time, let's stop there and let me close in prayer. Father, we do want to thank you for all that you taught us today about how forgiveness is entirely what you produce and direct and are the main actor in. Thank you that it is all your gift. And we thank you for encouraging us that way tonight. Thank you that you've shown us that this is a gift for everyone. And thank you that you've shown us that this is a gift that is for everyone and you achieve it through opposition and the work of your enemies. And we do want to thank you, Father, that there is uh, a great confidence we can have in the resurrection because you have raised Jesus from the dead. And so we are able to have that forgiveness proclaimed with confidence that we might accept it.
And we thank you, Father, that that forgiveness frees us from the things that the law and the prophets could never free us from. And we do want to thank you, Father, for the way that that resurrection of the Lord Jesus gives us uh, a guarantee, proof, <coughs> that our forgiveness is uh, real and it gives us a preview of forgiveness in our own resurrection one day in your kingdom. And we do want to thank you, Father, that you give us this great joy to underline that message of forgiveness in our own hearts by taking it to the lives of others. And we pray that as a result of that forgiveness being explained and proclaimed, that there will be many on this estate who are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.